This talk is the second of a four-talk series by Joel titled Practicing the Precepts, recorded November 21st, 1999 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, this morning I'm going to give the second in a series of talks about practicing our 10 selfless precepts. Uh, so I've talked about the precepts in general the last time. Uh, just a quick review. The reason that mystics practice precepts is slightly different than secular people practice ethics or even conventional religious uh, practitioners practice uh, their precepts. The primary reason that mystics practice precepts is to interrupt and ultimately dismantle our self-centered conditioning. I, me, mine, always referring our actions, our thoughts, our emotions to I, what I want, what I like, what I don't want, what I dislike, and so forth. Because it is this conditioning that creates the illusion of an individual separate self, and that illusion is what hides or veils our inherent enlightenment our inherent enlightened nature that's already there. It's just, in light, if you like, buried under this, uh, this activity of selfishness, self-centeredness. So this is a conditioned activity. It's been conditioned for at least as long as you've been alive, and if you believe in reincarnation and so forth, then it's been going on for an immensely long time. <clears throat> It's not something that we can interrupt just as a matter of willpower. And perhaps some of you have discovered this on your own. You can't just make a New Year's resolution to be nice. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> so the precepts help us to uh, spot this conditioning and then give us a way of interrupting it so we can start to dismantle this. So in order to practice uh, the precepts, as is true of any other um, spiritual practice, we need to apply four basic principles. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And specifically in terms of the precepts, what they do is call attention to situations in our everyday lives where we are usually acting selfishly out of some sort of uh, selfish desire or fear or whatever. And our commitment is to observe our speech, our actions, our thoughts, and to see when we are acting selfishly. And when we can see that, and that's already a big, big thing, normally we don't. When we can actually see that, then we detach from that. Detachment does not mean to suppress or repress or pretend it doesn't exist. So you have some strong, really selfish desire. You want that big piece of pie at Thanksgiving. <laughs> and you're hoping nobody takes the big piece because you really want that big piece. It's not about pretending that that isn't there. It's about truly, fully recognizing that is there. But what would happen if you just let that desire pass away? What would happen if you checked that? It didn't just automatically habitually, chronically act out of that. And then you see what happens. And so then that's the surrender part. You just surrender, in that case, to the situation. You see what is going to happen. So that's how you apply these, uh, these four principles. When we can surrender our self-centered conditioning, then something interesting happens. 
because part of our inherent enlightened nature is compassion, is love, is selfless concern for the whole. And that starts to flow automatically. You really don't have to do a lot to generate that. You really just have to get rid of the obstacles. So we naturally start behaving in a more compassionate, more loving way. And sometimes uh, we want to make a practice of actually, when we can see there are two ways to go, either act selfishly or selflessly, sometimes we want to jumpstart ourselves a little bit and treat it as an experiment. What would happen then if I acted selflessly in this situation? Because the reason we don't is we're afraid we are going to suffer more. And it's only through our own experience that we find that compassionate, loving action actually doesn't bring us more suffering, but that is the road to the release of suffering. So that's a little bit of the background. Now, the last time I gave the first in the series of talks, I talked about the two first precepts, which are really foundational precepts, precepts of responsibility and discipline. And the first precept is aimed at uh, directing our attention to a a spiritual fact, and that is our suffering is self-generated. And our tendency is always to blame our suffering on something outside ourselves, some circumstances or people or whatever it is, something outside ourselves. And as long as we do that, then we cannot see the truth that it is self-generated. So taking responsibility for your own happiness, your own suffering, is a way of stopping (coughs) this blaming of other people and other things and looking inside, seeing if this isn't true. Very important precept, and all the other ones sort of follow from that. As long as you're blaming other people, you can't see that. And then self-discipline is foundational because we need self-discipline for all the practices of the spiritual path, for meditation, for devotional practices, and so forth. So if you don't have self-discipline, it's very hard to start on a spiritual path. So self-discipline has a lot to do with reforming our lives, not to make us saints, but literally reforming how we're spending our time and energy and to start spending more of our time and energy in spiritual practice and less in things like frivolous pursuits. So this morning I'm going to talk about the third, the fourth, and the fifth precepts, and they are harmlessness, stewardship, and honesty. So the third precept is harmlessness, not to injure or kill any being heedlessly or needlessly. Now, first of all, you'll notice that this precept, like all our 10 selfless precepts at the center, is designed for a householder's life. It's not designed for a monastic life. In a a monastic life, one of the major differences uh, is you only have a responsibility for yourself and perhaps your monastic community, but you don't have a family traditionally and you don't have children and so forth. And so you have a different relationship to your community. So this is a preset designed for people living in a normal community and for people living in particularly uh, this society in this day and age. So it does not forbid all killing, as you'll notice. It forbids only killing heedlessly or needlessly. This is something I've noticed, for instance, among my Christian friends, who are true Christians, who really take the gospel seriously. One of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not kill. And so this creates tremendous moral strain on people who take it seriously, because in point of fact, it's almost impossible to get through life without killing something. 
So this precept tries to clarify that. I believe personally that the, the commandment thou shalt not kill, which actually comes from the Torah originally, it's not Christian, it's Jewish, meant thou shalt not murder specifically. But that's up to debate with scholars and so forth. But to clarify this, we say what this precept is about. It's not about forbidding all killing. And the reason is we are recognizing in this precept and all these precepts certain relative truths about our deluded existence. I say relative because ultimately they aren't true from an ultimate perspective. But as long as we are deluded, as long as we are suffering, as long as we are struggling, they are true for us. And the first one... uh, happens at a biological level. The law of this world is sacrifice. Up and down the food chain, life feeds on life. We know this more clearly today than we ever knew before because of our studies in ecology and so forth. You could look at all of life as being really one great sacrificial feast. We're all born, we all die, and we're all eaten. And we eat. And then we're eaten. And we eat. And this is how life goes on and grows. It's a feasting, just a constant feasting, 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 feasting. Now, some people make a distinction between sentient and non-sentient life forms. And some people then become vegetarians or more strictly vegans. There are many reasons to be a vegetarian or vegan. Some of them are health reasons. Some of them have to do with the planet. But some of them are moral reasons. And some people uh, forswear eating sentient beings for moral reasons. Now, it's a really good discipline. Anytime you uh, have a discipline which interrupts your selfish desires and so forth, it's a very good discipline to work with. But treat it as a discipline. And don't be fooled. Because ultimately, all distinctions are imaginary. Including distinctions between sentient beings and non-sentient beings, including, in fact, distinctions between living beings and non-living beings. These are distinctions we draw in our imagination, very useful, but they are not ultimately real. Ultimately, there is no difference between a carrot and a cow. (laughs) My teacher, Dr. Wolf, who was not a vegetarian, but tried vegetarianism for a while and found he just couldn't function, so he went back to eating meat. In fact, he hated vegetables. Uh, (laughs) Except avocados. He loved avocados. What he really loved was chicken and gravy and biscuits and apple pie and coffee and wine and cigarettes. (laughs) And Andrea would try and get him to eat salads, and he would say, do I look like a cow? (laughs) That's grazing food. But he used to say, the only thing you can eat with complete moral impunity, if you like, is fruit. Because fruit is nature's bribe. The tree puts out the fruit trying to get you to take the fruit and eat it and then drop the seed someplace. But everything else we're eating was once alive and now it's dead and now we're eating it. That's just a basic fact. So don't believe that by being a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever, you can escape this law of sacrifice and attain some imagined purity. I'm not trying to discourage you from being a vegetarian or a vegan, even though I'm not. I think it can be a very powerful discipline, as I said. But, but practice it with a certain amount of humility and practice it with your eyes open. Don't be deluded about what's really going on. 
then our precept also reflects a relative truth at the social level. Human communities must defend themselves against aggressors and lawbreakers. And we must struggle for justice. You know, in this time and place, particularly in this country, where we're so well off and so forth, we want peace, peace, peace. We forget you cannot have peace without justice. And justice takes struggle, and justice takes sacrifice, and justice takes risks. So we have to balance this. Peace is wonderful. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Believe me, I know how precious peace is. Right now, we're sitting here. No one's trying to kill us. No one's mortaring us, or, or there are no snipers waiting for us when we walk outside. We just take it totally for granted. Peace is incredibly precious. But the other side of the equation is justice. And we can't just worry about our justice. We have to be aware of justice in the world, other people's justice. Because we will become their enemies if we're not interested in their justice. And rightly so. They will see us as their enemies. Here you rich Westerners are living high on the hog and you don't give a damn. And all you want is peace at any price. Well, you're not going to get it, they say to us. Justice is very important. We have to struggle for justice. There's a Buddha Sutra in which a soldier comes to the Buddha and says, do you mean when you teach us to practice harmlessness that we shouldn't kill when we're defending our country? Or we shouldn't use violence against lawbreakers and so forth? And the Buddha says, I never said anything about that. He says, life is struggle and we must struggle for the good. He says, it's all about our intention. That's what makes the difference. Some people forswear all violence under any circumstances and become radical pacifists. Uh, the Quakers are a Christian group that does that. And again, that can be a powerful practice. That will be a very powerful practice if you are actually tested. It's one thing to say that, and then the day comes and somebody's trying to abduct your child from the park and you have a chance to physically stop them, it'll be an interesting test for you. And it might be a tremendously powerful practice in selflessness, in surrender, in letting go. So if you are a pacifist, or if you want to become a pacifist like that, I, again, am not trying to discourage you. But be aware, realize that the fact of our society today is the peace that we enjoy right now, right here, depends on people who are willing to be violent. Soldiers, policemen, jailers. If we didn't have them, we would not even enjoy the level of peace that we have. And we have to recognize that fact. We can't fall into spiritual pride. And if you are a pacifist, great. But don't fall into the mistake of thinking you're now morally superior to other people. And recognize that as a part of this community, this is what goes on. And for the foreseeable future, this is what human communities are going to be like. Hopefully, there is such a thing as moral progress on this score. Hopefully, slowly but surely, inch by inch, the way the continents move, we as a race are learning less and less to depend on violence. But it's not something we can just bring about overnight by some wishful thinking or romantic notions. 
We have to face reality. Mystical path is about facing the realities of life, not trying to cover them up. So guard against spiritual pride if you are a pacifist or a vegetarian. If you fall into spiritual pride, you're going to miss what the heart of this precept is all about. Because the real question here is not whether to participate in this great feast of life, but how you're going to participate. The real purpose of this precept is not to give you a a pretend way of getting out of the sordid realities of eating and killing and so forth. It's about how to show us how to participate in this feast in a spiritual way. Are we going to participate in this feast in a greedy, ignorant, grasping way? With resentment, hatred, and so forth. Or are we going to participate in this feast mindfully, with respect, gratitude, and compassion? That is really the choice we have here. And what this preset does is direct us to look at ourselves and to remove the obstacles to participating in it mindfully and with respect and compassion and gratitude. That's what these two little words heedlessly and needlessly reflect. Not to injure or kill any being heedlessly or needlessly. And those two words are very key in this precept. So when we vow not to kill needlessly, what this means is that we recognize situations where killing is necessary. Not only may it be necessary, it may be the selfless and the most compassionate thing to do. And in each of these precepts, let me say here, these precepts are not roadmaps that tell you exactly which turn to make here and there. They are guidelines, and each of you is your own authority about how to carry out the precept and what is truly compassionate and selfless. So one example of a compassionate killing may be somebody who is suffering tremendously at the end of their lives from some disease like cancer and so forth and wants to die, and you help them die. That could be a very compassionate act. It can be heroically selfless to kill in order to defend other people. It's almost become a cliche. If you are in a situation where there's a mass murderer slaughtering people in a restaurant or a schoolyard, and you have the means to kill them, you might be risking your own life, but you'll be saving innocent people. When uh, farmers kill insects to preserve the crops that human beings depend on. That's necessary. And if we're looking at uh, human communities, which there are still many in the world today, who are living right on the subsistence level, crop failure is famine. Creates tremendous suffering. Even Gandhi said, I will kill monkeys to protect the crops. Most of modern medicine, and we should recognize this, or a good deal of it, I should say, is dedicated to killing. The killing bacteria and viruses and stuff that feed on us. They are life forms, and we are their food. And when you go get an antibiotic, 
from the doctor, you're killing bacteria because the bacteria is eating you and you don't want the bacteria to eat you. This is what's going on up and down the food chain. Jennifer and I kill mosquitoes in this house. In the late summer, when the, when the mosquitoes are buzzing around at night, we can't go to sleep, you know, you're lying there. Zhoom, zhoom. If we didn't kill them, it's not even so much getting bitten, that's annoying, but we wouldn't get any sleep, we wouldn't be able to function. So at a certain point, we say, okay, that's it, we turn on the light, we get a newspaper out, we go around the room, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> But... Not to kill needlessly also, you see, means not to kill out of greed or hatred or revenge or simply because you find some life form revolting. So starting with the big ones, it means not to kill your neighbor just because you want your neighbor's land because they have a nice piece of fertile land and you live up on the hill a little bit with rockier soil. You don't kill animals just for pleasure. For your personal pleasure. If you're going to kill an animal, eat the animal. Or use the skin. I mean, uh, the carryover into our culture of hunting for most people is really just a, a tradition that at one time was very necessary. But now the raison d'etre has gone out of it. If you enjoy hunting, what I suggest you do, get a camera. <laughs> I, I don't mind uh, sports with animals. It's a way of participating in life with animals. See how close you can get to a, a, a grizzly. Yes, very good. Oh, that's good sport. With a camera. It means you don't just stop on a spider because it happens to be there and it's ugly and you feel squeamish. And again, Jennifer and I, we kill mosquitoes, but we take spiders out. We stop and we take the time to get a little, you know, a glass and a card. We use those preset cards. They work very well. You get the spider in, you take them out the door. I don't even mind the spiders. Jennifer is a little squeamish about them, you know, crawling and sealing over the bed particularly. Uh, so she calls me and she says, oh, get that spider out of here. But we don't kill them just because they're there. So this is what not killing needlessly means. And there are many instances in our lives, if you take this precept, you find you think you don't kill needlessly, but you'll be surprised. Most of you, you'll find that there are times where you do. You just, there's a spider, bop. The difference here between whether it's needful or not lies really in our intention. And that's what makes any action a moral action or an immoral action. What is our intention in this? Are we killing for personal gratification or out of personal fear or is it for the good of the whole? Which might include your own good. Taking a, an antibiotic so that you're not eaten up by bacteria is for your own good but it's also for your family's good and your loved one's good and the, the whole situation you find yourself in. Now, the more subtle aspect of this precept is not to kill any being heedlessly. And this, in general, the, the general directive here is whatever you do, do mindfully. With mindfulness, with awareness about what you're doing and the consequences of your actions. 
So, again, there are a lot of people, a mosquito lands on them, they just swat it. They're not even thinking about it. Or you're maybe uh, sitting in the park there and a spider comes by and you're having a conversation without even thinking about it. Your foot goes swat, squish, dead spider. Whenever you have to kill something, or let's put it this way, whenever you're faced with a question of whether to kill or not, ask, is this really necessary? Maybe I could just take the spider out if I don't like the spider. When we sit down to eat, it means not taking our food for granted. It means recognizing that those plants and those animals, even if they're just carrots and cabbages and so forth, they were once living things growing in the ground. And somebody ripped them out of the ground and cooked them up and put them on your plate if you didn't do it, and now you're about to sit down and eat. And that's going to sustain your life for a while longer. So, it's not about feeling guilty about eating, but if we're aware, if we're mindful... We eat with appreciation and with gratitude. These beings are sacrificing their lives so we can eat. And we can live. That's how it works. We don't have to feel guilty about this at all. You can sit down and enjoy a nice prime rib, if you happen to be, unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan. Fully enjoy it. Or you can sit down and enjoy that cabbage if you're a vegan. There's no reason to feel guilty about it because guess what? You're going to get to pay back whether you like it or not. That's true. When you're dead, then you're going to be food for the worms and the bacteria. They're all going to come and they're going to have a marvelous feast. And believe me, they won't feel the least bit guilty. They're going to enjoy themselves immensely. Chomp, chomp, chomp. When we eat, just take this as an opportunity to remember. Life and death are two sides of the same coin. There is no life without death. Our human existence is life and death. We spend so much of our time trying to avoid, shut out, get away from, cover up the fact of death, particularly in this culture. From a spiritual point of view, it's very important to face that reality, that fact of our lives, for a number of reasons, which I won't go into at length here. One of them, however, is to make us aware of how precious our lives are, our short little time we have here, and then to raise the question, what are we doing with our lives here? Are we frittering them away? Are we wasting them? What really are we doing? Are we using this time to wake up, to become aware? So, every time you eat, there's an opportunity to face death, to recognize, ah, yes, you're dead now, I'm eating you. In a while, I'll be dead, and somebody will be eating me. We can never escape from suffering and death. And this is a very important thing to remember from a mystical point of view. A lot of people accuse mystics of trying to escape from the realities of life. It's not true. Mystics, in fact... Do just the opposite. Sometimes they grind your nose in the realities of life. We cannot escape suffering and death. We can transcend them. And there's a big, big difference. In order to transcend them, we have to understand them. We have to really look into them. We have to understand what is going on here.
So it's very important. So this is the basis of our precept not to kill heedlessly or needlessly. Facing the reality of death. Then, the fourth precept is stewardship. Not to waste the resources upon which other beings depend. So this is related to the precept of harmlessness, except that it deals with inanimate objects. It's particularly appropriate for us living in this modern industrial society. And it's, it's somewhat new as a formal precept. You don't find a precept like this, for instance, in the Ten Commandments or in the Buddhist Ten Precepts set out specifically as not to waste the resources upon which other people depend. That doesn't mean it's totally new, and it's always been in in sacred cultures and traditions. The environment has always been respected and considered sacred and considered worthy of respect for that reason. It's something that we've lost in our Western culture, and that's another reason to have it as a formal precept set down there to remind us every day But we are really, um, in this culture, spoiled. We've really lost the appreciation for our environment. And we've particularly lost the appreciation for the things, the goodies that we make. In pre-industrial societies, it took a lot more time and energy to make things like baskets and tools and weapons. And they were considered... Uh, often to have inherited the spirit of their makers. So someone who made a sword, part of the spirit of that manufacturer went into the sword. Somebody who made some pottery, their spirit was in that pottery. They had a tremendous appreciation for these material goods. And we're supposed to be a material culture. And we've lost it. Really. Now, a part of the problem is, I'm talking about Western society here, our shelves and our stores are overflowing with goods. It's just amazing. We take it for granted, but it is amazing in relation to a good deal of the rest of the world and certainly the whole world prior to about 50 years ago. There's a movie I've mentioned before, pretty good movie in my opinion, called Between Heaven and Hell, something like that, about a a Vietnamese woman who marries an American GI during the Vietnam War and then comes to this country. Does anybody remember that movie? (laughs) Between Heaven and Earth, thank you. That's the name of the movie. And there's, there's one marvelous shot in there where this Vietnamese woman has arrived in this country and she's living with this American family in Texas someplace, I think, and they take her to a supermarket and it's shot low down because Vietnamese tend to be shorter than us and she's going down the aisles of the supermarket is from her point of view. And there are these bags of rice just sitting on the shelves, and this canned goods and stuff. I mean, she can't believe it. And we've seen her earlier in the movie, you know, hoarding a little bit of rice, saving every little grain and every little kernel. Can't believe it. The goods that are on these shelves are cheap and disposable. We may complain about the price of milk at the supermarket going up a little bit and so forth, but in relation to the rest of the world, they are cheap. And most of them are disposable. And then 
the other part of the problem is we have the ability to buy almost anything we want. Particularly at this time in our economy, the last decade or so, credit is so easy to get. I get offers, I mean, weekly in the mail of credit cards with $20,000 limits, $50,000 limits, just flooding in. They send credit cards to college kids. High school. Now high school. So what if you don't have the money? Go ahead, just put it on the card. A friend of mine in L.A. used to say, let the master pay for it. Master card. So let the master pay for it. So we have all this available. And then the other part of the problem is we don't see the conditions under which these goodies are manufactured. They all come to us wrapped up in pretty little packages, you know, with colorful designs in them and so forth. We don't see the Asian women in sweatshops making our electrical appliances. We don't see the South American peasants in the fields, you know, picking our bananas and our mangoes and our grapes and everything else. Even in this country, we don't see our own workers, who are generally better paid and so forth, but who spend 8, 10, sometimes 14 hours a day over time working at monotonous jobs on boring assembly lines. Being an old commie, I know all about this. It's rough. You go to a steel mill or an auto assembly plant. I worked at a paint factory down the road here for a couple of years. It was wonderful work. You sit there and the paint cans come through. These are these aerosol cans. And you put the, the little, you know, nipple spray thing on. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't bad for me because I could do mantra practice and stuff. You know, it's like counting rosary beads. <laughs> In this place, we got to shift off a little bit. We'd do that for a couple hours and then the cans would be filled with paint. And then uh, they'd come through this cooling bath. And then you have to stack them on this table, you stack them up so that then you can box them. So we got a little bit of rotation. But this was not exciting, creative career work. Most people who make these goodies, that's the kind of work they do. There's a lot we don't see. It just all comes to us, you know, in these pretty little packages. We go to the store, take them home, set them up and use them. Now, the sad part of all this is that it's based on a delusion. And the delusion is that happiness comes from material consumption. The more material goods we have and consume, the happier we will be. It's a dangerous delusion, particularly at this time and place, because the resources out of which these goods are made are finite. We live on a finite planet and it has finite resources. And so we use them up in our frenzy to consume more and more and more. And it is true. We are creating unknown changes on the face of this planet. Global warming and what else? We don't know. Most of us in our lifetime, we are going to find out. Another reason we don't care about it too much. Well, let the next generation worry about it. But really... The saddest part of this delusion is not even that we are destroying the planet. 
Because even if we could consume all these goods forever and ever, we would still not attain the happiness we so desperately yearn for. It ain't going to happen this way. It's a futile venture. At best, we distract ourselves with ephemeral thrills and pleasures. And we spend our lives doing that, and it all runs out, and we're dead. We never arrive at that happiness that we know intuitively is there because we all yearn for it. So it's not that we're wicked, it's that we're foolish. So anyway, the purpose of the, uh, or I should say, the spiritual purpose of this precept is not basically to save the planet. That would be a welcome result, and if everybody practiced it more, we would have a better chance. But the real purpose, from a spiritual point of view, of practicing this precept is to cure us of this delusion that happiness comes from material consumption. And this is why, if you were a mystic, you would practice this precept even if it was too late, even if the planet was doomed, even if the big headline said tomorrow, well, we figured out the greenhouse effect is irreversible, and in 50 years, the sea level is going to rise and wipe everything out. A mystic would still practice this precept, not to waste the resources upon which other beings depend. Because it's through practicing this precept that we begin to understand this delusion and then we can begin to let it go. So then there are two questions. One is how do you practice the precept? And then how, how will it transform you spiritually? And most of us by now, I think, know the answer to the first part. Don't buy things you don't need. Uh, don't waste food, energy, so forth. Recycle when you can. That part of it isn't such a big mystery. Again, though, I have to say this. Don't practice stewardship out of guilt because you're here a rich Westerner consuming, uh, you know, three-fourths of the Earth's resources and you are only one-seventh of the Earth's population or whatever. If you practice this precept out of guilt, you will just simply become outwardly self-righteous and inwardly miserable. So it's not about practicing out of guilt. It's about practicing out of humility so you can learn something. So, the spiritual purpose of practicing stewardship is to make us mindful of the things that we do use. So we can cultivate an appreciation for them and gratitude for them. So I uh, thought we'd take a concrete example of this this morning. I am unveiling a General Electric blender. (laughs) This General Electric blender belonged to Jennifer's grandmother. So it goes back. It's probably from the 50s or the 60s. It still works wonderfully. (laughs) Two speeds. Now, it's an older one. It's got some scratches on it. It's heavy. It's not all that pretty. You go look at it, and it's a symbol of how 
You haven't made it like these young yuppies who have Cuisinarts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and every time you use it, you know, someone, someone got two speeds now instead of ten speeds. So you needed ten speeds. <laughs> you can ride it too. <laughs> you know what? Let me show you something else here. You know what this is? Water and pestle. Water and pestle. Huh? <laughs> this one came from a science lab. But this is the kind of thing that for thousands of years, this is the way people ground up their food. In fact, I can tell you, if you try to make pesto with this, you grind up the, uh, particularly the pine nuts and the uh, fresh basil and stuff, it takes a long time. This... <laughs> There's pesto. I'm just showing by comparison the fact that you have this is a miracle. Most people today in the world, in the villages, still have this. So here, if we really appreciate what's going on, if we stop and took the time to appreciate the fact, this is fantastic to have a blender. Do you know what I mean? I mean, first of all, we can appreciate everything that went into harnessing electricity and the motor. I don't even know how electric motors work. I'm sure there are some people here who could tell us. But you you put a switch and... Do you realize Nebuchadnezzar, with all his wealth could not have bought, bought one GE blender. <laughs> the base here is made of metal. So this, I don't know what kind of metal it is, but it's, uh, this is, you know, real metal. <laughs> this metal came from some mine somewhere that some miner dug out of the ground perhaps got black lung disease doing it. Seriously, especially if this is from the 50s. Hard, sweaty work working in a mine. It went to some uh, refinery place and it got smelted and turned into whatever alloy this is. It got uh, made on an assembly line, no doubt, with people working, you know, bolting this together. They come down the line, shh, 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 getting, uh, what do you call that? Uh, uh, the plastic? I, you know, don't even know how plastic is made. Excuse me? Is that, this probably is real glass, isn't it? <laughs> My God. <laughs> This is real glass. <laughs> this is, hey, this is an antique, Ellen. <laughs> you can keep your Cuisinart. <laughs> Who said $5? Try 500 <laughs> The Smithsonian. <laughs> then these got boxed up in cartons, shipped across country by truckers driving, you know, these long ships. <laughs> no, when we stop and think about this, this was shaped by other people's hands with a lot of work, with a lot of toil, with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. If this was in the 50s and 60s, 
I don't know how much of it came from overseas. Those Cuisinarts today are put together in Taiwan. The metal was mined in, if there's any metal in them anymore, you know, in uh, Bolivia or someplace. When you stop to appreciate how this arrived on your kitchen counter, it connects you with humanity. One of the positive developments of this global economy and so forth is we are connected. We depend on each other. We depend on those miners in Bolivia. We don't sit here in this lap of luxury without outside support. I love mangoes. In the wintertime, they're very expensive. I can't afford them. In the summer, they're cheap by my standards. They come down below a dollar, I'll buy a mango. That mango passing through my hands, passed through the hands of the uh, clerks in the Safeway or the Albertsons, passed through the hands of the truckers, the packers, all the way back to some, uh, uh, these mangoes came from, where do you say, Ecuador. All the way to some peasant picking the mango in Ecuador. My hands, his hands on the same mango. I'm eating it. Thank you, peasant in Ecuador. Thank you, truckers. Thank you, shippers. Thank you, Albertson clerks. Do you see what happens when we practice stewardship? Instead of looking at this and saying, oh, gee, I should have a Cuisinart. I deserve better than this. Look at all this old thing. Gee, I'm embarrassed when my friends come over and I just have two speeds and ten speeds. <laughs> no, when we practice stewardship, it's a miracle we have this. Our life is full of gratitude, full of joy. It is. You walk around this house. This house has... You know, I mean, it has a CD uh, player, it has a tape deck, it has a phonograph, it has a TV. These aren't the latest, newest ones. But to have a, any of this is a miracle. To flip on the light at night is a miracle instead of uh, looking for the candles. No, no generation has ever lived like this before. Incredible. And in the world's structure, we are at the very, very tippy-tippy top. We look at Bill Gates and we feel bad. Oh, I don't have the money Bill Gates has. We're crazy. We are literally crazy. Deluded. I can open my refrigerator and I can look in there. I got a choice of six or seven different menus I can have tonight. In fact, last night I couldn't decide. I'd eat alone. What was I ended up with a frozen turkey pot pie. I could have had uh, pesto, frozen pesto with tortellini. I could have had a quiche. I've got a little Mexican quiche from Trader Joe's in there. I'm a suspicion. I'm not sure that I'm going to eat it. I got eggs. I got hot dogs. I got a little piece of Italian sausage. I even got a microwave, which I don't know how to use, but I, you can even defrost some of these things quickly with that. They taste better. What? They taste better that way. Defrosted in the microwave? Oh, cooked. I mean, come on. You know, this is to, to be able to go to your refrigerator, open it up, and have five different choices of food and not even think about it? 
This is for gratitude, occasion for gratitude, tremendous gratitude. So practicing this precept, that's what it's about. We can tap into and discover this joy and happiness that's already there. It's free. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay for it. If we just become mindful of what's going on, if we stop for a moment, if we stop and let go of that self-centered, grasping, greedy, selfish activity, open our eyes. That's all we have to do. It's just right there. It's wonderful. It's one of my favorite precepts. It's such a joyous precept when you really start to practice it. It transforms your whole relationship to the environment. Everything in the environment. Instead of the environment being a source of frustration, of jealousy, of deprivation, instead of looking out and saying, oh, what I don't have, you look at what you do have. And you value it. And you treat it with respect. And if someone, Jennifer's mother, gave us a Cuisinart, we would keep it. But we wouldn't just then throw this in the garbage. We'd take it to Goodwill, or we'd, we'd get, try to give it away here on a Sunday or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Pass it on to somebody else. It's not a big mystery about it, but it, what it requires is this awareness, mindfulness. Don't waste the resources upon which other beings depend. The fifth precept, then, is honesty. Not to deceive myself or others by word or deed. So this has two parts. Not to deceive myself, not to deceive others. Not to deceive others gives us an opportunity to observe closely those desires and attachments in action. Because when we are deceiving, we are acting. So the first thing, if you want to practice this precept to do, is to pay attention and catch yourself in the act of lying. And just to notice that you lie is already practicing the precept. Don't be in such a rush to then blame yourself and say, oh, I lied, I shouldn't have done that. That's, you missed the point. You observe, oh, I'm telling a little white lie here. Ah, opportunity. Why am I telling this white lie? Why am I lying in this situation? What is it that I desire, that I'm afraid of, that I'm attached to? Specifically, we talk about desires and attachments in general a lot, but what, particularly in our lives, are we attached to? It's different for different people. What people desire is different. So, when you take this preset, it gives you an opportunity. Right then, you're lying for some reason. What is it? Just some examples. Let's say you find yourself uh, filling out your tax return. Tax time's coming up. Oh, I don't have to really report that little bit of income. Nobody will know that. Or I can exaggerate this expense. What is it there? It's simple for most people. Money. You're attached to money. You're living in a society. You elected these representatives. These are laws. The society needs tax dollars. 
to run, but you're attached to money. You don't want to let it go. It's amazing, actually, what people will uh, lie about on their tax forms for a very small return. When you figure it out in terms of the tax bracket, maybe you're saving a dollar. I mean, if you're, if you're Bill Gates, you can stand to save lots of money, and then you hire people yeah, to do it for you. And then it's uh, a different problem. But the, the curious thing is, if you watch this little bit of grasping, it's, it's so petty. You just won't let go. That one little dollar. Whereas chances are, if you were in a rush someplace and a dollar spilled out of your pocket and you're rushing to catch a plane, oh, you'd let it go. It's a dollar. More subtly, lying about your true feelings in order to seduce someone. I'm looking at the men in this room here more than the women. Oh, I think women do it too, but more subtly. Oh, yes, honey, yes, I really love you. I really care for you. Why? <laughs> no, seriously, men do this. We do. I've done it. You're attached to the pleasure of sex. Sex is quite complicated and quite deep. Maybe it's not just the pleasure of sex. Maybe it's a psychological uh, idea of conquest that you're really attached to or whatever. But you see in that moment, why am I lying? Why am I saying this? This isn't true. Then you can see what you're attached to. Maybe you're lying about some mistake you made to cover it up. This could be even more subtle. Maybe there aren't even any major consequences. You made some mistake at work. It's not like you're going to get fired, but you uh, said, no, I didn't do that. I didn't know. I didn't see that. Maybe you're hanging on to attach to some subtle image of yourself as being a competent person. You don't want anybody to know that you could make a mistake, that you could be incompetent. Attached to that. So in these acts of lying, there are very concrete reasons. And most of the time, we will find that they are based on some self-centered, grasping, desire, attachment. All right, you start to observe that, you catch yourself lying, and you check it. That's the first step. You just don't lie. And then you experiment with truth. What would happen if I just told the truth in this situation? Supposing I said, yeah, I made that mistake. That's right, I shipped off uh, the red paint instead of the yellow paint. I just wasn't paying attention, I'm sorry. You try it. You try it and you see in your own experience, yes, you might feel embarrassed, you might feel uncomfortable and so forth, but you are free. There's a tremendous freedom in being able to just say, yes, I did that. Not have to pretend. All that energy that goes into pretending and defending, you just drop it. Not to deceive yourself is the more subtle aspect of this precept. And the biggest way we deceive ourselves is through rationalization. And again, you watch your mind. That's where you see it happening. It's no big mystery. Taking pens from work. Oh, I, I can do this. Not really stealing because I'm underpaid at work. That's the rationalization. The truth is, you contracted to do the work at a certain wage and... 
You're part of this bargain. Now, some places at work, you know, there it's understood there are perks. Sometimes people say, oh, sure, everybody here can use the Xerox machine for your personal stuff or not. You know, it's not about uh, being rigid, but you watch and you see how the mind rationalizes when you are doing something that you know you shouldn't be doing and you're lying to yourself. Here's a trickier one. Someone asks you to have lunch with them, a friend, or an, uh, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe just a friend. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I've already got other plans. And you don't. <laughs> now, the rationalization is often, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And this is why this is a trickier one. Maybe that's true. Maybe that was your pure, compassionate, selfless motivation. If that is true, fine, because as I said in the first talk, what always overrides any of these precepts is selfless love and compassion. And you will always find times where it's more selfless and compassionate to lie. And of course, the, you know, the classic example is if you were in Nazi Germany and you were hiding Jews in your attic and the Gestapo knocked on the door and said, have you seen any Jews? You don't say, oh, I cannot tell a lie. There are Jews in my attic. You say, no, I haven't seen any. Heil Hitler. You lie, lie, lie. The proof that it's selfless and compassionate is that you are risking your own life because if the Gestapo find out you're hiding Jews in your attic, you're going to the concentration camp with them. So there are situations where all of these precepts, selfless love and compassion, overrides them. But be careful. Maybe you were saying, no, I have other plans because you were solely concerned about not hurting their feelings. More often than not, it's because you're having some difficulty with your friend and you know you have to sit down and really talk to them about it, but you're trying to avoid an unpleasant scene because you don't like it. So you're putting it off by saying, no, I have other plans. Often it's mixed mode. And when you start practicing these precepts, you find that a lot. And then you have to look into that more deeply. You have to sort that out as best you can. You have to experiment. But the whole point of this not... Buying into your own rationalizations, not being deceived by your own mind, is extremely important. Because if we deceive ourselves, then we cannot help deceiving other people. If we don't know why we are doing things honestly and truly, then we don't know why we're acting in other ways in the world. The Tibetans say that it is better to know you are doing something wrong and go ahead and do it than not to know that it's wrong. This is counterintuitive for a lot of us. We think, well, if someone didn't know it was wrong, then they're blameless. But again, this is not about blame or not blame. It's about wisdom and awareness. If you are doing something over and over and it's wrong and you don't know it, there's no opportunity to change. There's no opportunity to wake up. But if you do know it, even though you still do it, at least there's opportunity to wake up. Because you know partially what's going on. So this is why this precept is so important. 
So these three precepts, I've given you some examples, talked a little bit about how you might implement them, but they're only really hints, clues. We've only really scratched the surface. And with all these precepts, the way you really understand the depths of what they reveal to you about yourself, about your situation, you can only get through applying them, through practicing them. Most people who start practicing precepts, they begin and they take something like not lying, and it seems pretty simple and pretty straightforward, and you start practicing it. And as you practice it, you see how deep this precept really goes. You see subtleties and subtleties, a richness in them. So it's a little bit like meditation. Uh, Precepts are something to work with. If you just pay lip service to them, if you just say, oh, those sound good, I think I'll live my life by them, and put the precept card in a drawer and forget about it, nothing much is going to happen. But if you actually treat them as an experiment, say, what would happen if I actually tried to do this in my life? You will see it will transform your life. So that's my little talk this morning on those precepts. How are we doing a time? Mm, a little over. Any questions or comments? I have one about slugs. Yes. <laughs> and as a gardener, it troubled me. And I, I went through a period where I would say, thank you for giving your life so this may live. And I went. And then, and then I went through a, a stage where I could just step on them without even thinking about it. But it finally, it finally dawned on me that I couldn't do that anymore. And now I gently pick them up and I put them in my covered compost black container. They love it. <laughs> and they don't come out, as far as I know. They're trapped in there. And they just have endless food. And they go through their cycle. They eat themselves to death. I suffered with that. Uh, well, again, this is, you see, the point isn't that there's a right way or wrong way to do it. The point is that you did suffer with it and struggle with it. And that's what makes you mindful of what's going on. That is really the point, you see. That is the struggle to wake up. That is the struggle to become aware. There aren't stock solutions to these things. You can get advice from friends, and sometimes we sit around and share advice. Oh, what I did in that situation, and that's helpful. But each of you has to come to uh, arrive at the true solution, what is true for you in your situation, in your circumstance, in your context at that particular time. Just real quickly, uh, when you were talking about that um, blender, whatever you call it over there, um, just as you did that on a very, very minor degree, I initially looked at that and thought it was kind of cool. It's kind of art deco or whatever. And then after you started talking about it, I said, you're talking about these really nice Cuisinarts, and they really are nice, and they're snappy, and they just... I look back at this thing, and just on a very delicate scale, I said, that's really kind of a sad, out-of-date shabby looking little mechanism. Now, I did this very minor. I mean, it's not mine. I have nothing in this. And I said, wait a minute, Scott. What, what just went on there? Suddenly that thing became shabby. And I can see how in my life, and I'm sure all of ours, so many times we look at things, and we, we know this intellectually again. We got this thing down. But we look at that and we say, that's my blender, and I'm a little bit out of date, and I'm a little bit sad, and I'm a little bit shabby. 
Because they look at it that way. Because somebody somewhere said that, and they sounded very authoritative, and a whole bunch of people around me seemed to be really getting with the program. And that's what I am right there. And you know that is crazy. Now, you so notice is this that? is a marvelous example because you are doing, you are really practicing mindfulness in a beautiful way, without judgment. And you are noticing how your mind just says that. Oh, yeah. It's not, I, you know, it's just, it's conditioned. That's why Even mystics say, I don't know, but choo. that's why <laughs> mystics say it's conditioned. You don't have to get upset and feel guilty about it. That's what you want to be able to do. You want to have that clarity of presence when that thought, even that subtle little thought, you see, that subtle little thought is capable of just coloring that moment and spoiling it for you. Yep. And this is how our suffering is built up. We think of suffering as the great big things. Do you know what I mean? But when mystics talk about suffering, they're talking about that little disappointment, that little dissatisfaction, that little uh, that keeps us always separated from the cosmos moment to moment to moment. And that is a wonderful example. And you can see how it happens. And when you can see how it happens, you can let the thought go. And then you can look at this. And then eventually you can look at this without any sort of uh, conceptual judgment. You can see it as the Buddhists say. You can see the suchness of it. It's just what it is there. And what it is at that level is literally a divine self-disclosure. It is God appearing to you in form. Quite literally. In defense of this blender, this is a far better machine than the Cuisinart. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) You'd look at that Cuisinart 30 years from now and see if it's still running and still performing. I'm not giving it away. <laughs> at a certain point, it turns around. You know, you mentioned that he first looked at it and said, Oh, that's kind of interesting, Art Deco. You know, when styles come back in, oh, then everybody wants it again. That's the whole retro thing now. Yeah. Retro, you know. No, this is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments or questions? Um. Okay, a little, little bit about my vegetarianism is about not uh, having animals in factory farms or in cages and not getting to run free. So I do eat meat if it's from an animal that's gotten to live a somewhat natural life. But um, what I'm wondering about is, I guess I end up feeling, okay, good, I don't want to make the animal suffer that way, so I don't pick these. But then I feel going with this choice something's actually better and, and something's not um, being hurt or, or suffering. There was this point in there that I, I knew it. No, I understand what you're saying. And that's a, that's a wonderful distinction to make. And at this level, it's strategy we're talking about. What is the most skillful means to accomplish this? What is the most skillful means to change the way that our society handles food animals? Ultimately, what my feeling is, the way we change that is to change our spiritual approach to animals. When we all recognize that animals aren't just products, then we will have laws and so forth uh, that will make maybe meat a little bit more expensive, but the animals be, you know, better treated as they basically were before these big factory um, processing, you know, plants came along, like these new pig farms and stuff and chicken things are, are dreadful. So, 
it's good. I'm not trying to discourage anybody from thinking that way and trying to see what can be done. I'm just saying be realistic and also realize that no matter how, ultimately you are, your body is made of food. I mean, it's made of plants and animals. That's what's in your body. And other bodies, and all, it's true of all of them, that's all. Don't lose track of that. How we treat each other, how we eat each other is very important. But we can never escape from the fact we are eating each other. Anybody in the back that I can't see? All right, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around and have some tea. Check out the library, chat. Until I see you again, peace to you all. Thank you.